Boom Supersonic is an aerospace company building the world's fastest and most sustainable commercial airliner. If you look at supersonic travel, uh, or I would say air travel, there has been no innovation in over 50 years. Why are we, despite all the technology leaps in ground and airborne technology, still having bottlenecks and capacity constraints like in the 70s? The answer to this question lies not only but mainly in the fragmentation of the European airspace along national borders. Welcome back to Should I Fly? Our exploration of the passenger aviation industry. Together with my colleague, Professor Patrick Reimiller, we're trying to understand how this industry will change. Whether that change is the result of the economic damage inflicted by the COVID pandemic, the rise in awareness of aviation's impact on the environment, or simply due to smart people finding better ways to do things. Which brings us to this episode on entrepreneurs and investors and how innovation might impact our answer to the should I fly question. In short, we are looking for innovation, where it might come from and where it might take us. The first voice you heard was Harshul Sanghi, head of venture capital for American Express, talking about their recent investment in Boom, a company building supersonic passenger jets. Did he just say there has been no innovation over 50 years? Yes, he certainly did. And he's not alone in thinking that. According to that second voice from Danny Vader, the former CEO of Skyguide, Switzerland's air traffic control organization, he reckons we won't find much impact coming out of the R&D labs of large aviation corporates. Jeff Potter, the CEO of Surf Air, a subscription airline, is another who predicts disruption. I think most consumers would agree that uh, the airline industry was yet to be really disrupted. Some who have taken to the skies see real change coming. The pilot and entrepreneur André Boschberg told us about the moment when he realized he might have something very useful during his solar-powered flight around the world. The technology that we were testing, that we were implementing, that we were developing, and uh, this was not the goal at the beginning of the project, seemed to become extremely interesting for the world of aviation. That gives hope. Entrepreneurs outside of the big corporations develop useful things and establish new businesses. Jim, you've co-founded several startups yourself and coached many others. What is happening in the world of entrepreneurship today? A lot. We're seeing a Cambrian era explosion of startups all over the world. The amount of capital pouring into new ventures and new ideas is setting new records every quarter. In the first half of 2021, over $156 billion was invested in startups by venture capitalists globally. By June 30th, the amount of global venture capital invested this year was almost as much as what was invested for all of last year, over $300 billion. And this trend has continued in the third quarter. Yes, there's so much money injected into the system by the central banks around the world. The share prices are rising and money is chasing the greatest possible returns. According to CB Insights, in September, more than 800 startups had valuations exceeding $1 billion. 
a lot of money is going to such unicorns. What is all of that money going into? Everything. Fintech, business productivity, health, biotech, crypto. Of course, cybersecurity is very hot. Sustainable or ESG investments, as they're called, are getting a lot of capital. And that would include businesses with ESG-aligned business models, like electric vehicles or even food tech. And of course, there are a ton of apps that basically do things that your mother used to do for you, sucking up a lot of money. It's hard to decipher how much of these investments went to the passenger airline industry, but if we combine transportation, aerospace, and airlines, we get to about 4% of the total VC activity since the beginning of 2021. This could mean it is carefully allocated in a portfolio of unrelated investments, randomly scattered, so to say, or chasing after what's hot. You're talking about professional venture investors. But it also seems that COVID has created a fever amongst individuals with, for example, Robin Hood making investment easy and infectious. That whole GameStop saga was interesting. Money is chasing investment opportunities. Sometimes it seems like there is more money than good ideas. The pandemic seems to have accelerated the perceived need for digital transformation and for even more innovation. Many companies have come to the realization that they don't need to innovate from scratch and that a faster approach might be to invest in startups. In our previous episode, we suggested that the share buybacks of the top US airlines meant that those $45 billion did not go into R&D or in some way improving the safety and efficiency of flying. Looking quickly at the P&Ls of the major airlines, it is actually hard to find where their innovation investments are. For example, the income statement of Southwest Airlines shows zero for R&D. The same for American Airlines. If I flip over to Amazon, the same line item shows $43 billion in 2020 spent on R&D. For Nestle, right down the street from IMD, this number was almost $2 billion. However, even if the airlines themselves don't invest directly in their own innovations, there is a tremendous amount of money being spent by them via their corporate venture capital arms. For example, JetBlue has made almost 30 investments in companies like Joby, Universal Hydrogen, and Lacuna. KLM has made 18 investments. Boeing spent over $3 billion on R&D in 2018. In 2020, Airbus invested 2.4 billion euros. And even if it doesn't show up as R&D by the airlines, CETA reported that in 2018, the airlines invested over $50 billion in IT, with cloud, cybersecurity and business intelligence being the biggest areas. Are the airlines themselves doing enough? We asked Thomas Vellacott, the CEO of WWF Switzerland, what he thought. What we look for is a commitment on their part to net zero carbon emissions. We look for milestones and we look for concrete measures today that give us some confidence that they're actually on that trajectory. Now, that's not something that airlines so far have been prepared to sign up to. I think that's actually changing. I think more and more airlines are thinking about 
how are we going to operate in a net zero carbon world? But in the past, that just wasn't the case. There was a lot of greenwashing around just things like, you know, well, we've, we've got more modern planes, so per passenger mile, we're actually emitting less CO2 emissions. Well, if you're on a massive growth spree, that, you know, the planet doesn't really care about that. So, but I think things are changing there. Jim, you may remember our discussion about Rolls-Royce, one of the most important manufacturers of jet engines. They spent over one billion pounds of gross R&D in 2016. Before the pandemic, about half of their 15 billion pounds in annual revenues came from its civil and aerospace division. And according to the FT, their CEO has insisted that decarbonization offers a commercial opportunity and he recently pledged to make all commercial engines in production able to run on sustainable fuel by 2023. This is only 15 months from now. One of our alumni, Giancarlo Savini, is a corporate venture capitalist with Honeywell, based in Houston, Texas. As we were recording this episode, he called to announce some exciting news that bolstered our previous disillusionment with what is happening with Sustainable Aviation Fuels, SAF. Honeywell has invested several million dollars in a company called Alder Fuels. During the White House event where Honeywell and United Investment on Alder was announced, the U.S. government also announced the launch of a government-wide sustainable aviation fuel grant challenge. And this challenge is to increase the supply of at least 3 billion gallons of sustainable aviation fuel per year by 2030. And by 2050, the demand will be sufficient to meet 100% of aviation fuel demand, which is projected to be around 35 billion gallons per year. So sustainable aviation fuel is bound to be very significant in the near future. We were still a bit skeptical, so we probed further and learned that United CEO Scott Kirby committed in 2020 to decarbonizing United without relying on traditional carbon offsets. Part of that commitment means increasing SAF usage and availability since, in his opinion, it's the fastest way to reduce emissions across their fleet. Honeywell and Alder Fuels will jointly scale and commercialize the technology. United Airlines has also committed to buy 1.5 billion gallons of this new sustainable aviation fuel over the next 20 years. As this market is still in its infancy, this is at the moment the biggest fuel agreement in aviation history. We also learned that American Airlines plans to procure 10 million gallons of SAF from Prometheus Fuels by 2025 through a process that produces fuels from captured CO2 and renewable electricity. And Delta Airlines is committed to replace 10% of current jet fuel use with SAFs by 2030. But not everyone is a believer in SAF. The question on innovation and the climate may be how much time we have. The recent sixth assessment report of the Working Group of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change presents four possible scenarios for our climate in the near term, 2021 to 2040, and in the long term, 2081 to 2100. 
they all involve rising temperatures. And whether that increase is 1.5, 2, 3 or 4 degrees, the panel expects to see an increase in extreme weather events like floods and droughts. Will regulators defend the free market when their voters' land is scorched or while their homes are swept away by spring floods? It may be better to take action quickly before the states take to heavy legislation. Yes, there seem to be four plausible scenarios for aviation. One, rest. An incremental rise in temperature does not lead to action but rather further deterioration. Two, rally. Incremental temperature increases rally stakeholders to real action. Three, rigor. Rapidly rising temperatures drive greater interventions and regulation of aviation. Four, rift. Rapidly rising temperatures meet political stalemate among and within countries. Patrick, I like your model, though I think rift could also mean the opposite, that governments issue decrees to the people and industry to force rapid change. None of these scenarios is pretty. Innovation seems to be the missing element and perhaps our last hope. As one sign of innovation, the One World Alliance, which includes amongst others BA, American Airlines, Qantas and Japan Airlines, committed itself to net zero aviation emissions by 2050. That sounds good, but isn't 28 years from now a bit late? I mean, I know right now the airlines, airports, pilots and aircraft manufacturers are just trying to survive, to get past the pandemic. But where are the disruptors? Where are the entrepreneurs and investors when we really need them? Entrepreneurs can find new ways that large corporations don't see. The idea of using carbon offsets, for example, is well understood. Yet Clive Jackson, who founded a company called Victor, wants to take offsets to the next level. Victor is, let me quote, a charter broker with a global digital jet charter marketplace. Clive, what does this mean? How would you end this sentence? Victor is a consumer-facing brand which organizes private jet travel for those that want it. My whole approach with Victor had been to take a step forward and make a commitment in July 2019 to offset the emission associated with every flight that we undertook on a global scale, not just once but twice, double offset, private aviation has absolutely flourished. But when we think about why and who can afford it, the question then comes down to those that are most able in society are the ones that should take and show a leadership position. And that leadership position comes with the freedom to be able to choose how and where and when and why you want to travel except that it comes with a level of responsibility in terms of how you are impacting the environment and you have to do something about it. On average, two passengers on a private aircraft would pollute 20 times more than someone flying on a commercial jetliner with 80% occupancy. Now, if you take the airline industry, pre-pandemic this is, 1% of commercial airline passengers contributed to some form of carbon offset. 
So that was my starting point. At the end of our first 18 months, we were just shy of 9% of Victor's passengers. 9% of the passengers taking Victor's flights take carbon out of the atmosphere? Pretty impressive. Addressing climate change by taking carbon out of the atmosphere. Okay, where do you find the people who are crazy enough or far-sighted enough to invest in a project of this scale, like this or others, with long time horizons? Silicon Valley is one of those places. We spoke with Emmerich Salen, founder and CEO of ND Capital, a venture capital firm in Woodside, next to Stanford, the heart of Silicon Valley. Everything we do is for impact investing because at the heart of Nano is how do we use science and technology to address some very large problem of society. One of the investments that Emmerich Salen and ND Capital made was in H55, a Swiss electric plane startup. When we did the first flight with 2009, people were saying electric propulsion for airplane is interesting, but no future for aviation. And when we completed the flight around the world with this, that was 2016, so seven years later, the world changed completely. And I think thanks to the fact that the electric cars, of course, emerged as being a very interesting solution, maybe thanks to Tesla, but this world really changed during these seven years. That was André Borschberg, the man who piloted Solar Impulse. While some of us wait for a substantial amount of CO2 to be extracted from the atmosphere, or SAF to become plentiful, André Borschberg and explorer Bertrand Picard decided in 2009 to show that a solar-powered plane could be effective. And to prove it, they created Solar Impulse and circled the globe in 2016. Halfway through his circumnavigation of our world, solely using electricity generated by the sun, André had that pivotal moment. I would say that you know, when I completed these five days, five nights over the Pacific Ocean, I became convinced that the technology had a great potential. I really got the impression that electric propulsion had so many advantages which could be used, not just to replace combustion engine, but maybe to come up with different type of design that it would become inevitable in some ways. H55 received their first major investment from a venture capitalist in 2018. The real value of what this uh, incredible group of people had developed was really the electrical population systems. The solar was basically the, the source of energy, but what was so uh, terrific was the efficiency of the system and the fact that this system had survived so many hours and had already a certain level of certification, giving comfort to uh, agency to let them fly and land in places with high density population, which is, you know, a critical aspect. So it was more than a year, 12 to 18 months of constant discussion, strategy session to really follow the thought and to get to the point that we say, okay, where is the real value is battery safety, number one, battery management system, electrical architecture, of course, the propulsion unit with the electrical engine and the driver and all uh, the control that you need, and this independent of the aircraft. So when the business plan and the strategy was getting finalized, we felt that not only we had the best team, but I think we had a shot of being able to supply independent 
of which program, which aircraft type, but up to a certain size of aircraft, a solution for any aircraft manufacturer that want to become electrical. And that was the angle that we decided to go, and we felt very good. Why does an already successful person like André decide to launch themselves into such a big long-term project? I think the purpose is extremely attractive. We know we have to do something. André and his startup, H55, have raised over $22 million. A surprise to us was that a good portion of that is not for technology development, but rather the validation of their technology by the civil aviation authorities. Certification of a new aircraft does not come cheap. The challenge afterwards is to demonstrate that it's safe and that you can certify it and bring people. And I estimate that not more than 5% of the budget goes to make a prototype flying and 95% afterwards to bring it to certification. Andre and Eimerick hope to have their planes in the hands of pilots already in 2022, at least as training vehicles. Recently, they landed a partnership with Harbor Air, North America's largest seaplane airline. It's exciting to see what H-55, Hard Aerospace in Sweden, Joby in the United States, Pipistrel in Slovenia, Dufour Aerospace also in Switzerland, Zero Avia in California, etc., etc., are doing. But it may be some time before we see a measurable impact. Andre Schneider is the CEO of Geneva Airport. I don't believe that this will be a major part contributing to the reduction of CO2 until 2050. There will potentially be electric planes, but I don't think we will see like 80% of the fleet changed because it's clear it will be concentrating on short haul and certain middle haul flights. We have airlines which have an average age of the fleet of 15 years. I have other companies which have three years, four years. And when you know that an average plane costs between 100 and 200 millions, you can understand that not everyone is just going to throw everything out and buy new. So this will take time. And there are still some huge questions about electric planes. It's, for example, how do you carry the energy? Today, there is no battery available with enough uh, density to actually do that in a weight to uh, power ratio. And even if that would be possible, we have a 45-minute turnaround. You know what kind of infrastructure that will take to load such a plane in 45 minutes? So what I'm saying is, yes, it will come, but I don't believe that it will come as quickly as some might hope. We are one of the most regulated and safety-concerned industries. So when you see how long it takes to get a new plane certified, let's just see. Andre is an expert, but I'll bet many people, even car industry experts, said some of the same things about Tesla and electric vehicles. How long did it take before it became reasonable for common people to buy an EV? And even if electric propulsion only functions for now on short flights, it's important to note that half of all flights globally are under 500 miles, 800 kilometers. Making those emissions free is already a big step forward. There are many entrepreneurs and investors who believe that there is a huge future in short-haul flights, or even air taxis as they're called. Many of these are EV tolls, vertical takeoff and landing electrically powered aircraft. One of them, Joby Aviation in Santa Cruz, California, expects to have revenues of over $2 billion by 2026. Joby has raised $1.6 billion in a SPAC earlier this year, 
and before that had raised almost $800 million from VCs. On a smaller scale, you have Archer Aviation in Palo Alto, California, a team of 300 people which has raised around $55 million, including from celebrities and aviation experts like Jennifer Lopez and A-Rod. They went public via a SPAC mid-September on the New York Stock Exchange with a valuation of $2.4 billion. Jim, it isn't only Californians who have flown into this space. Lilium, based in Germany, has raised almost $400 million, including from investors like Tencent, the Chinese internet company, and Atomico, the VC firm of the Skype founder Niklas Zenström. Lilium, beyond their cool eVTOL aircraft, is planning air taxi networks in Florida and a part of Germany. In Florida, they have 14 so-called vertipads on the drawing board. And there's also vertical aerospace in the UK, which says they have pre-orders for 1,000 of their eVTOLs, from, amongst others, American Airlines and Virgin Atlantic. Their investors include American Airlines, Rolls-Royce, Honeywell, as well as Microsoft's corporate venture capital arm, M12. It seems like everyone wants to get in on the electric plane business. But all of that is for short point-to-point flights. At least one entrepreneur, Blake Scholl, co-founder of Boom Supersonic, is looking at aviation from a different angle. He wants to be carbon neutral, but he wants us to be able to fly faster and far. American Express agrees with him and invested. Here's Amex's head of venture capital, Harshal Sanghi, again. We did have supersonic travel with the Concorde 50 years ago. So in that time frame, we've gone from going to the moon to reaching Mars, but we haven't iterated on fundamental jet engines at all, right? And we have self-driving cars, we have all of that. So really, when you think about it, it's a bet on the future of travel, right? In a post-COVID environment, I think people do want to reach their destination quickly, faster, in better shape, right? Um, And I think the other key aspect of Boom Supersonic is that with everything that's going on in the world, people do want their travel to be more sustainable. And Boom is committed to having their aircraft be 100% sustainable when it comes out. You've got so many routes that this can actually fly on and it'll be twice as fast as conventional jet. So to that extent, that's one of the biggest bets on the future of travel. If my memory is correct, flying on the Concorde was not cheap. A round-trip ticket in today's money was something like $20,000. Earlier, we heard voices saying that air travel should not just be a luxury for the rich. United Airlines has already committed to buying 15 of these supersonic jets. Boom CEO said that their ultimate goal is to be able to fly anyone, anywhere, in four hours for $100. At Boom Supersonic, we're building faster passenger airplanes that ultimately that we could all fly on. Imagine New York to London in three and a half hours So many things that happen in life only happen because of the convenience involved. Uh, The the people you can bump into informally at the the water cooler, the office, um, or who you might run into at a bar or restaurant that ultimately might become your fiance. Being able to serendipitously meet people and convenience in one form or another seem to be driving forces for innovation in the airline industry. 
Some seek this at airports, but most fly to find more of this at their destination. When we travel, I don't think too many people get up in the morning and say, I'm so excited to go to a major airport and not know about lines, not know about parking. And, you know, it's, it's a stressful experience. So we're typically saving uh, our members two to three hours every time they fly. We're the first all-you-can-fly subscription airline. You show up 15 minutes prior to departure. You have this personal touch with a personal... That was Jeff Potter again, CEO of Surf Air, based in Los Angeles. Buy a subscription and fly as much as you want on their network. An interesting business model. These innovations are exciting, but our goal for Net Zero is still 28 years away. Thomas Velikut of the Worldwide Fund for Nature. Technology and innovation are hugely important. We are not going to solve the climate or the biodiversity crisis without a massive amount of technological innovation. So it's super important. Sometimes it gets positioned as sort of an either-or between legislation or technology. Well, it's not, of course. You know, if you take something like solar, the reason we've had the massive technological innovation in solar and battery technology is because certain governments like Germany and then China, set the framework conditions in a way that that was encouraged. That didn't just happen in thin air. So I think we need to get away from this sort of either-or thinking. But Thomas, there are some promising technologies out there, like hydrogen, or like the electric propulsion that we've talked about here with André Borschberg of H55. We need to get away from a sort of naive Hail Mary techno-optimism where you sort of assume we'll just continue as we are now because technology is going to take care of everything. Well, that's not quite how it works because if you take the fact that we need to decarbonize the world economy by the middle of this century, that essentially means that any technology that isn't already being scaled today We'll just be too late for that. We've been talking about innovation in aircraft, fuel, and business models. Willie Walsh of IATA believes there is another area of innovation, regulation. Would innovations in the air traffic control systems run by states help with climate change, airline profitability, and passenger comfort? It's a massive change, and personally, I, and I've used the word before, I think it's a scandal, uh, because we have a very inefficient air traffic system in Europe that can be addressed uh, without any cost, to be honest with you, because the cost has already uh, been incurred. So uh, the aircraft flying today, we have the technology on board the aircraft to enable us to fly from A to B without following ground-based navigation equipment. The aircraft can fly from origin to destination without any reference to anything on the ground. So the air traffic control system in Europe is inefficient, and it's inefficient because of politics. If you addressed the European airspace and develop what's known as the single European sky, which, to be honest, has been debated before I was born, you could save an estimated 10% of uh, CO2 that's produced over Europe. That's the level of inefficiency. It's between 10 and 12%. It's massive. And it can be done tomorrow because we have the equipment in the uh, aircraft and we have the equipment on the ground. But politics has intervened. So we're still following routes that were established in the 40s and the 50s. 
Here's what Danny Wader of SkyGuide says. The task of air traffic control is to ensure that the aircraft have sufficient distance to each other at all times. That's the very simple principle. On the other side, we have the cockpit crews in the aircraft who are also supported by data processing and decision-making systems on board. These onboard systems have uh, made major progress in the last decades, progress in terms of technology, sophistication, actual decision-making support for the pilots. You may know the saying that an aircraft can practically fly by itself, even if that is not quite true. It describes the progress that the aircraft systems have made. Within Europe, a plane is only allowed to take off at a certain airport and conduct its planned flight when there is assurance of a seamless journey from departure to destination. A so-called gate-to-gate efficiency is key for reduction of the environmental industry footprint. To me, this sounds good. Very rational and geared towards concerns for the environment as well as airline profitability. But picking up from Willie Walsh's comments, why aren't we more efficient? In Europe, there are about 60 air traffic control centers predominantly located within the airspace of national countries. These countries were designed and installed post-war too, with a view on national airspace borders and not with a bird's view on the flow of the whole airspace flights. Therefore, each center controls a certain volume of airspace that is mainly determined by the geographical limitations of the national state. It is not based on the needs of the main traffic flows across the continent. And therefore, each of the 60 centers today functions in a silo. So as Willie said, it's just politics. Or is it? There are safety concerns which are always mentioned as one of the first reasons. I believe that safety even might improve by using digital technology. Uh, then we have the size of the industry. The industry is relatively small. So there is not much interest for innovation because the air traffic management industry is not large compared to uh, aircraft uh, industry, for example. So the investment volume is relatively small. It is difficult for technology providers to create a sustainable business plan. Then we have the unions. <laughs> we shouldn't underestimate the unions. They are, let's say, not very transformation-friendly. What I see as main scientific challenges in the next years to come is the future of air traffic management. By admitting that we will have a huge increase of unmanned objects, drones and God knows what else. And that also raises the way, how do we communicate with each other? Will we have to build new communication networks? We will have to go away from a quite old-fashioned methodology, which is human management to a more automated management. Sorting out flight corridors, upgrading systems, optimizing automation. Is this what amazing sounds like in innovation? Really? We are building near space vehicles and infrastructure to power the world's fastest transportation network. And we'll be carbon neutral from day one. That was a quote from the pitch deck of Mikhail Kokoric of Destinus 
a space entrepreneur that I know from Silicon Valley. Mikhail and his team have recently set up shop in Switzerland and are building an autonomous liquid hydrogen powered hypersonic plane that can travel it up to Mach 17. Yes, I said Mach 17. Before the end of this decade, they hope to be able to deliver a package from Paris to Sydney in just over one hour. Can passenger travel be far behind? SpaceX's Elon Musk believes he could use his rockets to take people from New York City to Shanghai in 39 minutes. In 1914, the first US commercial flight occurred in Florida, with a passenger paying the equivalent of $11,000 for a 23-minute flight just 50 feet off the ground. Could anyone in 1914 have foresaw that today you can travel the 12,000 kilometers from New York to Shanghai in 15 hours for $6,000. Perhaps in 2021, the ambitions of Mikhail Kokorich and Elon Musk are too incredible for us to even imagine. But to Patrick and I, it is obvious that entrepreneurs, technologists, and investors will take us to places that today would seem unbelievable. We created this podcast series as an exploration, as neither I nor Patrick really felt qualified to answer the many questions around aviation's present and future. We've learned a lot, and we hope you, our listeners, have as well. We would like to hear from you. In the show notes, you'll see again a short questionnaire. If you respond quickly, we can discuss your comments and questions in the upcoming episodes. In our next episode, we'll take a closer look at man's need to travel and how your behavior may be changing as we speak. Thank you for being with us. You've been listening to Should I Fly, written and presented by me, Patrick Reinmuller. And me, Jim Polkrono. We're a production of the IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland, one of the world's leading providers of insights and education for executives. To find out more about the school and to read our new magazine, I by IMD, follow the links in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for listening and see you next time.